You might think that the key to living a healthier and therefore happier life mostly comes down to a good diet and plenty of exercise. And then you want to kick your heel towards your butt there and like you're pulling something. And you wouldn't be completely wrong. But did you know that there are lots of other tools that you could be using to rejuvenate the way you live? For example, reacting to another person's good news with real enthusiasm and genuine interest is proven to enhance your relationships. And good relationships will keep you healthier for longer. That's just one of the tools listed in a new book, Positive Health, written by five experts at Ireland's Royal College of Surgeons. The main thing it does is it puts a tool in somebody's hand, which, you know, with all books, that's the value of them. Um, It's something that you can have and in a sense it accesses agency and it gives you something to use and go forward with. One of the five authors is clinical and positive psychologist Dr Trudy Meehan, who joins me today to go through some of the practices we should be bringing to our daily routines. The benefit of this book, I suppose, is that there are a hundred tools, so there's something for everybody in there as well. I'm Connor Pope and this is In the News from the Irish Times. Today, the tools you need to stay healthy and happy. Trudy, in the book you have more than 100 pieces of advice and they're all organised into different categories. So, for example, there's calming tools and energising tools and feeling good tools. And a lot of those tools might be fairly self-explanatory. Calming tools, for instance. But what do you mean by something like prospecting tools? Yeah, I think the prospecting is a very interesting idea and just looking forward into the future with hope and almost like... You know, you can't say prospecting without thinking of looking for gold. And it's the simplest way to explain it as well. And it's something that we don't always do when we think about the future. Usually our vision of the future is filled with worries and dread. And we're not very good at being incredibly, you know, positive or looking for the gold. So essentially prospecting is just putting us in a mind frame or a mindset where we're conscious that there might be something worth looking forward to, or we might have to set that up and go hunting for the gold. One of the things I like about the book is that it gives you really practical tips, things that you can actually do that might improve your life. So when you talk about the prospecting tools, there's one of the tools is looking forward to tomorrow. So what you're suggesting people do is that every day over the next week, You take five minutes to write down three good things, either three people or events or things that are going to happen in your life that you're looking forward to experiencing tomorrow. And you try and experience that thing right now, wholeheartedly ahead of time. So can I do a little experiment with you, a thought experiment, if you like? What are you looking forward to tomorrow? My looking forward to thing is unusual because it's getting up earlier than everybody else in the house. Okay. And I've traditionally been a night out. But I've managed to get into the habit of getting up an hour before everybody in the house and writing three pages in a journal, just expressive writing. And it's it's beautiful. I love it. I have mm. my coffee. I sit there. There's peace and quiet. The dogs come over. I rub them. They give me cuddles. And then I sit in calm and I just write. And I suppose the reason I look forward to it now is because I associate it with a beautiful cup of coffee, cuddles from the dogs and peace and calm. And it's that slow peace before the day takes you. 
before the day takes you. I just love that that phrase. Okay. So I have a practice every morning that's mine before the day takes me. Oftentimes going to bed, I'm like, I can't wait to get up in the morning. <laughs> Which is so bizarre for me. If anybody knows me, they would be surprised by that. So three things I'm looking forward to tomorrow. Picking my five-year-old daughter up from school, because she's always so excited. Yeah. Um, Cooking dinner. Yeah. And just sitting on the couch watching the telly after everyone else goes to bed or after the children go to bed. So which one of those should I try and pick now to live in right now? Or like, is that how it works? Yeah. And that's a really great question, because the interesting thing about some of these tools is they can piggyback on each other for multiple benefits. So any one of those is a nice thing to reflect on and look forward to. But some of them are more powerful. So looking forward to seeing your daughter and picking her up. That also piggybacks on savouring your child. Mm. And so imagining seeing her and picking her up, you start to savour her and connect more with her as well. And then that deepens the relationship. So it's adding to your deepening of relationships and connection, probably adding to meaning in your life because, you you, you know, having her in your life gives you meaning and a role. So that that's a superpower, you know, good thing to look forward to tomorrow. Isn't there another thing here, though, and it might be pushing back against that tip, which is that we're always told to live in the moment and to experience the moment. So if we spend some time in our day not living in the moment, but living in a future moment, are they not two contradictory things? Yeah, definitely. That's that's a really good point. I suppose the problem is that we're not very good at living in the moment. And the front part of our brain is designed to simulate experience, imagine what's going to happen, you know, if X happens, then Y. So we're constantly thinking about the future. It's it's the way we're designed, you know, mm. just to, you know, in case of disaster, I'm going to have this lined up. It's a safety mechanism. But it makes us quite miserable to be constantly thinking about the future because because often, you know, there are worries in there. So obviously the best thing is to not have a wandering mind and stay in the present. But because most of us are just basic humans, and we haven't done years of kind of meditation practice and mindfulness and training, we can't do it very well. So in the absence of that, if we're going to be thinking forward, the next best thing is to be thinking forward of something positive and using the brain's default mechanism of looking forward for good instead of for bad, if that makes sense. So instead of catastrophizing about what might happen in the future, we say, well, this good thing is definitely going to happen in the future. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And you start to build a habit of thinking about good things happening in the future rather than bad things happening in the future. And the more you do that, there's a chance that you can rewire your thinking process to to imagining positive things in the future rather than negative things in the future. Now, that's a good idea. I like that. But there's lots of other really good ideas in the book. Far too many to go through in a short podcast. So, Maybe I could put you on the spot for a second and, and, and ask you to identify what are your favourites? What are, what are the things that you found yourself going back to again and again and again after writing and researching this book? Yeah, um, it's a great question. And each of the authors would have a different set of favourite things. So, you know, Dr. Yolanta Burke, you know, is really keen on prospecting and um 
Dr. Parikh Dawn focused on the meditation and breathing. And, and it's it's to do with your personality as well and your experience. So for me, the things that resonate and fit with me are playfulness and creativity. Playfulness and creativity. Yeah, yeah. And, and that's to do with who I am. I have a sense of humour. I like messing and, you know, kind of the, the not serious part of life. So it's an easy thing for me to do if I want to add more kind of positive energy and positive emotions into my life. Playing's not always easy for adults. Even though it's my favourite thing, it's also worth mentioning because as adults, we forget how to play. And it's it's actually one of our basic drives and, and it's part of our biological system to play. But it, it gets kind of socialised out of us in a way. So it's very important to come back to play. Mm. And the really cool thing about play for anybody who's really serious and thinks play is a waste of time is that when we play, it activates opioids in our brain that are those feel-good chemicals but they work on the prefrontal cortex which is just near the front of our brain which is that future bit if x happens then y but what that does to that part of the brain is it makes it a better decision maker so you can make more thoughts about what might happen in the future and better decisions about them and that's a really cool thing to be able to do so play has very positive consequences for serious logical people as well as playful people. It's interesting you say that because almost all of our social conditioning is about being serious and to leave the things of childhood behind as we become adults. So how do we reverse that? How, how, how does a serious minded person learn how to play? Interestingly, um, chess is, is actually a form of play because it's one of the most serious games but all of the different characters in chess allow you to almost like role play. So they found that chess is actually quite a playful activity. So if you're really stuck, start with chess. Um, but the, the other thing is to just just pause, reflect back on who you were as a child. You know, there, there's an activity in the book writing a playlist. Mm. And, and, you know, like, what did you do as a kid? And that might be, you know, for very serious people, maybe they didn't play very much. Maybe they played in a different way. But, you know, that still counts as play. So go back to your original, what did you do as a kid? Find out what those were and then put yourself in situations where you're around those objects or activities. So if it was, you know, making things, go into an art shop. If it was, you know, kind of reading was your thing, go back to the library, go to a bookshop and spend some time there. Maybe it was running around outside. Go outside, go into open space, put yourself into the kind of environments that as a kid you would have went, this is amazing, I just love it. And then, you know, you don't even have to think about it. Your body will move towards the space once you're in it, you know. Coming up, how writing your own obituary might help you make real and positive change in your life. Now, one of the other things that strikes me is that the book comes with a healthy amount of caveats. Because sometimes when you're reading about self-help and... It's so relentlessly positive, like you have to be op optimistic, you have to believe in this and that and the other. But your book makes it very clear that it can be very hard to be happy. 
And I'm just wondering then, is it a question of picking the right moment to read this book or to take some of the ideas on board? Because some people might say right now, I just can't, I can't do that right now. I need to be strong enough. And is it all about timing how you think about these things? Yeah, definitely. And what we know about timing and learning and taking on new information, we're more open minded and we're more likely to be able to learn and take on kind of novel ideas if we're experiencing positive emotions in the first place. Negative emotions shut down our thinking, they close our mind and they make it very difficult for us to engage. So there's a good chance of picking up this book or any kind of help book when you're in a very kind of low negative state of mind and just going, no, this is never going to work for me because you're 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 starting off from a closed position anyway. So we know there's some small things that people can do to get them set up um, to be able to engage. And it's things like getting out, connecting with people, just some small social contacts can open you up if you've been very isolated for a long time. It's very hard to be open. Physical movement and activity is really helpful. Like, And it's very basic things that you need to do. So it's almost like building blocks to, to momentum and movement. In old-fashioned psychology and behavioural psychology, they call it forward chaining, where one behaviour chains and builds and supports the other one. And um, anybody who has children, they use this all the time. So you go pick up all the toys and the kid goes, no, or they're just running around throwing the toys around. And then you go, let's make a game of picking up the toys. And you start, and you put the toy in the box and you throw it in. And then hmm. you get them to actually pick up the toy and actually put it in the box. And then you build and you build and you build. So when you're in a very closed or low state or things are really bad, it's about doing tiny m- movements to get you to start getting into a forward chain of positive momentum. Okay. And there might be 10 steps before picking up that book that need to happen. And it might be drinking some water, eating a nutritious meal, giving yourself a little bit of compassion, taking a breath, you know, just putting something warm and cozy on. Very basic things need to happen before we can move to the next step and kind of f- get that forward momentum. There was one other thing that really leapt off the page at me and I wouldn't call it a very basic thing and it comes under the heading of meaning-making tools and it's about thinking about your legacy and how you can best maybe use the time you have left in this life in a positive way. And there was one particular thing that kind of, I don't know if shocked is the right word, but it certainly caused me to, to take stock and that was the headline Most Feared Obituary and I'm just going to read you a little section from the book. Imagine that you didn't manage to change all your unhealthy and unhappy behaviour patterns before your death. Review all of your current habits and routines that make your life unhealthy and unhappy and imagine what would happen if these problems got worse year on year until you die. Imagine a long life and that you do not make any positive changes to the way you live it. Your standards, priorities and goals remain the same and as you let yourself go, your happiness and your health continue to deteriorate. Now, write your obituary. Make it very personal and detailed. Imagine your family, friends and strangers will read it in the newspaper and online. Write about your life as it would be if you didn't change the unhealthy and unhappy ways you live. Do you think that's going to help me with my well-being or other people with their well-being? Because it sounds kind of stark and 
maybe even a little bit frightening. Yeah. And it's great. So the darkness and suffering is really important. Um, and facing it can make us feel resilient and kind of give us a bit of strength. But also it can add value and meaning to the present moment and being alive. So we know that contemplating death, for example, is very helpful in, in helping you live in the moment and really bring you down to the present moment. So this practice of kind of looking at the worst possible case scenario can be helpful. And the other reason it's around optimism is it's it's called defensive pessimism, um, which is found to be a very helpful practice. So you think of all the worst possible things, which makes you optimistic because oftentimes you've worked through the worst case scenarios. You've thought about them. You're going to make some changes so that they won't happen. And that gives you more positivity in a sense that things are going to be OK. And so I guess for me, I like that tool because it brings in the reality of the value of the, the so-called negative or thinking about the darker things. Because really, you know, and looking at that, it's around and an obituary in particular looks at our relationships to others mm. our, and our meaning. And one of the key things that we know is that asking people what matters to them is important. So the question, you know, that especially now in the NHS, GPs are being encouraged to ask what matters to you, not what's the matter with you. Mm. And that if we can engage people in thinking about meaning and values, they're more likely to be proactive in looking after their health. So getting to that point where you really have to face what is important to me can be very motivating and energising in helping you live well in the now. But I'd imagine you'd need a degree of mental resilience to approach that particular task. Because if it was approached from the wrong place, it could see somebody spiral into an even darker and bleaker mood, couldn't it? Yeah, that's a good point. It reminds me of the question that comes up in mental health often that people say if they ask them how they're doing, it'll just make them worse to get them to talk about it. Mm. So there's a perception that if we put people in, you know, if we start a conversation about how bad things are, we create that. Mm. Oftentimes people are already in a very bad place and that by talking about it or engaging with it, you're actually opening up and creating avenues out of it. So in writing that down can be a very helpful thing in kind of really bringing someone's mind to bear and go, oh, wow, you know, I'm really spiraling here. I'm going down, down, down. But I do think and and I really appreciate you bringing it up, Connor, as well, with all of these practices and anything to do with kind of anything that brings you into yourself, you do need a level of resilience and, and kind of just a support sometimes. And we're not always in the best place to be able to do these things. And I know for myself, anybody who's heard my lectures will have heard me say this. But when I started working at the centre and I looked at all the pillars of lifestyle medicine and all the things I needed to do to be healthy, I sat in my kitchen and cried. Mm. <laughs> and I just felt guilty for my, you know, for I want to be, you know, I want to live well and be disease free for my little girl and all of these things. But I also want to be here for her in the present. I also want to provide for her. And how do you cover all those bases? And so it can be overwhelming sometimes to be expected to do all the things so that you're you're good enough or well enough, you know. 
So it's a double edged sword sometimes. And sometimes we need support in that and, and people to give us a reality check and also to say, we're probably never going to get there completely and good enough has to be enough sometimes. Mm. And the people who would provide that support are the, are, are, are the relationships that we have. Yeah. And, and and there's a lot of stuff, a lot of really good stuff in the book about relationships. And there was one thing that struck me, which was called capitalization. And what capitalization refers to is taking the opportunity to capitalize on good news. And I don't mean good news that's happened to you. I mean, good news that has happened to other people and responding to that good news in a positive way, being enthusiastic about good news that somebody else has. Do you think that's something that people don't do enough in our world? And does it make a difference how we respond to somebody else's good news? Yeah, it, first of all, I, I think we're all guilty of not doing it enough, for, partly because of distraction um, and partly because of, uh, I think, culture as well in Ireland. We're not the best at celebrating, um, you know, and being enthusiastic. So it doesn't come naturally. Um, but I th- it's really important and it's important in relationships, not just between, you know, a caregiver and a child, intimate relationships, friendship relationships as well. And we know that in relationships, when people respond to another person's bid for attention, the more positively we respond to that bid, the stronger the relationship will get. And if we don't respond, if we turn away or, or kind of don't give enough time to that that bid for connection, that has a really negative impact on the relationship and, and, and it can linger and start to deteriorate and kind of eat away at the relationship. So on a really basic level, if somebody's engaging with you and telling you something, you're turning towards and engaging with them. And the, a lovely way to do that is to kind of go, not just, oh, wow, that's really good news, but to thicken that story. Now, that's a practice. Like as a therapist, I know how to ask questions to develop a story or thicken a story. Most of us don't. We just go, oh, that's really great. You know, that's brilliant. Are you delighted? Yeah, I'm <laughs> delighted. And that's the end of it. Yeah. But the way to capitalize is, you know, things like, well, you know, somebody might say my boss said this piece of work I did was amazing, you know, and you go, great. We delighted. Yeah, I was delighted. I'm delighted. And then you go, tell me about it, though. Like, what did he say to you? What did you say to him? Were there other people there? What did they say? How did you feel after it? Did you celebrate? Mm. Did you have a little dance? You know, um, who did you tell about it? You know, what are we going to do now? And I'm going to remind you that when you're, when you forget and you think you're crap again, you know? Yeah. Um. So yeah, it's those little things. And we don't do it naturally, I don't think very well. And do you think people should be putting more practice into developing those relationships at that level? Yes. I think, honestly, if you could do one thing, if you can develop your relationships, that's going to be great for your health and well-being. You know, you're going to be happier. But we know from research that people who have good relationships live longer and have less health impacts, you know, in terms of heart disease, stress related diseases, Mm. because loneliness increases stress. So good relationships are really health promoting. And it's something that if we put time and effort into them, you know, that's going to pay dividends for us, not just in our happiness now, but actually in our, our, our health in our old age. Now, social media obviously comes up a lot in the book, as, it, as, as indeed it comes up a lot everywhere. Yeah. And it's addressed quite specifically at, at one point. 
And I kind of would have expected there to be a more negative take on social media. But studies cited in the book have actually found that while too much social media is bad, too little is not necessarily great either. So how do we strike a balance between the good and the bad parts of social media? And how do we get it right? Yeah, I think if you think of social media in two ways, one is for the social aspect of it. And we know that there's benefits to social connection, especially in online support groups where people can share very specific experiences, you know, maybe a rare disease or a specific life event that somebody's going through can be really helpful. So the social engagement is good and and even kind of the brief social and the general social media is people feel quite lonely if they're cut off from it. But we also need to pay attention to the fact that it's a device and 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 it pulls on our focus and attention and that has negative impacts. So when we're talking about the negative impacts, there's the kind of negative things that you might get from the constant fighting, but also the pulls on our attention, which are really exhausting on our brain mm. and really drain us. So to manage it, it's really around managing your relationship with your device and and not putting all the time into, into, into that. So it, it's around putting boundaries around it and getting it out of your space. Yeah, because we're not really hardwired or equipped to deal with social media and, and everything that it has brought to our world over the last 10 or 15 years, which is lightning fast when you consider the evolution of the human mind, isn't it? it it's it's so quick and the, the reward systems that are activated when we use social media, it keeps pulling us in and, and it's very good grabbing our attention you know research has shown that just being around your phone even if you turn it upside down and and try not to see the notifications coming in the proximity of the phone limits your attention span and your ability to focus just the awareness of it being there so just turning it upside down isn't enough it has to get out of your space altogether Mm -hmm. because we're not very equipped at dealing with that you know and and so we have to really be quite ruthless and, and and understand, you know, the dangers of it. And, and, you know, we all have been in the experience and we were just talking about relationships where you're not fully engaged when somebody's talking to you. And we do it with our partners, our friends and our children. And, you know, that's one of the most toxic things about our devices, you know, and they just pull us away. So I would say things like I know people find it really hard but just, you know, if you're sitting down watching TV in the evenings, put the phone out of the room, you know, just give yourself a break from it. Keep it out of the bedroom, plug it in to charge somewhere else if you're charging it overnight. Get an alarm clock. If your phone is your alarm clock, get an alarm clock, you know, and um, don't pick it up first thing in the morning. Wait until a certain time to pick that up. Have your cup of tea, your coffee, your stretches, your cup of water, whatever your thing is. But don't make the phone your first thing in the morning. You know, I I, I should probably follow that advice more than anything else in the book myself, to be honest. But finally, do you like the idea that this is considered or this might be considered a self-help book? Or is it more of a, a book for medical professionals? I mean, where do you think the book falls? Yeah, it's a great question. It falls in between in a way because it's written in a different way than most self-help books. Most self-help books would have more of a story and a narrative and less scientific references. So it's unfamiliar, I think, to a lot of people who would pick it up as a self-help book. The format looks different. And we also really had an ambition and a hope that 
GPs and people working in the community with people in primary care who are the first point of contact would also have access to this information. Because part of the work that's happening at RCSI is transforming the medical curriculum and broadening the definition of health to include lifestyle factors and look at preventable factors in in our health as well. And GPs are really busy. They just can't take everything on board. So a book like this is a tool that they can reach to, they can give to a patient to flick through themselves and they can collaborate together. And that's the ideal model. You work with kind of the treat the disease, you know, work with the medicine and the technologies that the GP has. Also look at preventative and lifestyle factors and collaborate around who the patient is as a person. And this book is is a kind of a common focal point to make that easy for GPs to be able to do. Dr. Trudy Meehan, thank you very much for talking to us. Thanks very much, Connor. That's it for today. My thanks to our guest, Dr. Trudy Meehan, for joining us. The book, Positive Health, 100 Plus Research-Based Positive Psychology and Lifestyle Medicine Tools to Enhance Your Wellbeing is available now. In the news, we'll be back soon.